across the whole planet. But unfortunately, the times we live in uh, means that everybody expects things for free, generally. I think it's free. That's why the internet was put out there with so many free things on it initially, to get everybody hooked on it. It didn't just evolve by itself. When Brzezinski said they were going to give the public a method of communication, and then he detailed the reasons why, the real reasons why, to create a sort of global, global culture and, and surveillance as well, of course. Then they put all that free stuff out there so that everyone would, would get used to it. Then they start tightening up and tightening their ropes, making you pay for things. And shortly when it goes into the cloud system, even the big newscasters who are going to take over the Internet, you have to pay even to get into them. That's been in the news recently. So help me out. It's up to you. Back with more after these messages. I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. You know, we're bombarded by articles every day. There's thousands and thousands of stuff of articles. Articles is just is just data, really. Most of it's irrelevant. Uh, others, other articles are full of um, propaganda, you might say. Other ones are just simply deceptive, and and other ones again are deceptive and put out really as handouts by organizations, and often they're, they're non-governmental organizations, but you'd never, most folk don't even know it. So they think they're reading news, uh, but it's actually a handout with a spin, uh, according to a particular non-governmental organization or foundation. And there's an article here to do with militias in the U.S., and it's from the AP Press, Associated Press, Definitely a handout because, and here's why. It says by Aileen Sullivan, August the 12th, Washington, militia groups with gripes against the government are regrouping across the country and could grow rapidly according to an organization that tracks such trends. You see? The stress of a poor economy and a liberal administration led by a black president. So, Already, if you don't realize it, that they're labeling it as racist. You see, by the way, it's worded here. That's not, that's not happenstance. The stress of a poor economy and a liberal administration led by a black president are among the causes for the recent rise. See, so you're giving your premise right away at the beginning. That's how most of these things work. And once it's in your head, like, like an imprint, the rest of the stuff just flows into your skull without you questioning I just watched a BBC documentary that was sent to me. I can't watch anything because I'm on ExploreNet uh, satellite. It, it's awful, awful. Don't anybody get it. They punish you if you use it and cut you back. And even the, the commentator in that BBC documentary about Britain and the spy cameras started the premise off by saying there are cameras everywhere, but most folk like it. So right away he's giving you a false impression. Most folk don't like it at all. That's how simple techniques are. And these guys are taught to use them. Back to this article. It says, it says after basically saying you're racist, uh, if you're, you're against any Obama's policies, uh, it says the report from the Southern, the Southern Poverty Law Center. This is, the, this is the group that attracts the trend, supposedly. Now, if you look into the Southern Poverty Law Center and look into its history, if there's any organization that should be investigated, and they have been over, over the years, it should be this one. 
because they have an agenda. Conspiracy theories about a secret Mexican plan to reclaim the Southwest are also growing amid the public debates about illegal immigration. Bart McIntyre, a special agent with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, told Southern Poverty Law Center, so here's the police, you see, a special agent talking to this NGO group that's heavily funded through foundations and so on, to spin things in a particular way. And they've got, as I say, one hell of a track record for corruption and so on. So this says that this is the most growth he's seen in more than a decade. So here's the cops in bed with this NGO. That, that's not how it's supposed to be, by the way. All it's lacking is a spark, McIntyre said in the report. It's reminiscent of what was seen in the 1990s. Right-wing militias, people ideologically against paying taxes and so-called sovereign citizens, are popping up in large numbers, according to the report to be released Wednesday. The Southern Poverty Law Center is a non-profit civil rights group that, among other activities, investigates hate groups. You should see that how the CEOs of this particular bunch and the money they've been caught with in the past, and trunks of cars and stuff. <laughs> Last October, someone from the Ohio militia posted a recruiting video on YouTube billed as a wake-up call for America. It's been viewed more than 60,000 times. And it is wonderful, isn't it, that the Internet really is helping uh, governments, even if they're tyrannical. I mean, the Soviet Union didn't have this kind of uh, miracle happening in their backyard. They didn't have all this stuff to, to watch the spy and spy on the public. But here we are in the West. We, we're, we're, we keep telling us we're free, you know. And, uh, and we're helping them at the same time because they're spying on us and what we watch. And that's why they're taking track of everyone and what size you go into to keep a tab on you. This is what it's all about. We're under something far, far worse than George Orwell even dreamed of. It says here, things are bad, things are real bad, and it's going to be a lot worse, said the man on the video. Could not give his name. Our country is in peril. This is the man is holding an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle and he encouraged viewers to buy one. Well, anti-government, no, anti-government is a term that came right from the Soviet terminology. That's no coincidence. They started to use it, I think, in the Bush uh, seniors' uh, presidency. It was the first time I'd heard it used in the West. They used that in, in the Soviet regime from the beginning. So, so in other words, anti-government, when you complain about anything the government does, you're now anti-government. That means that the whole opposition lobby must be anti-government too when they complain about policies. Huh? Well, anti-government sentiment has been on the rise over the last two years. There aren't as many threats and violent acts at this point as there were in the 1990s, according to the report. Then it says, the movement before uh, bore the likes of Timothy McVeigh, who in 1995 blew up a federal building in Oklahoma City and killed 168 people. But he did it all on his own, right? But McIntyre fears it's only a matter of time. These militias are concentrated in the Midwest, Pacific Northwest, and the Deep South, according to Mark Potok, an SPLC, Southern Poverty Law Center again, <laughs> staff director, who co-wrote the report, recruiting videos and other outreach on the Internet are on the rise, he said, and researchers from his center found at least 50 new groups in the last few months. 
The militia movement of the 1990s gained traction with growing concerns about gun control and environmental laws and anything perceived as liberal government meddling. And it's great again how they spin it off into liberal, isn't it? And they label anyone who thinks that they, they're standing up for their country is right-wing. And, and by the new definitions, you see, they're quite right. Because, you see, I think it was Kissinger, when he was over in Germany, uh, he was asked the question at a meeting, uh, how, how, to give the definition of terrorism as perceived with internal terrorism within the United States. What did, what did the U.S. actually mean by terrorism? And Kissinger said that anyone who is not globalist is therefore labeled as a terrorist. That's the definition of it. See? So if you are standing around thinking you're still an American citizen and you have a nation, you're therefore a terrorist. You're ter- because we're supposed to be global now, you see. We're under governance. Governance. Governance is done by groups and NGOs, etc., uh, with, with the selected people in government who do treaties with other countries via the UN generally and those treaties are binding and they bound us together a long time ago as a global society uh, a la Fabian style it's been done a long time ago it says now uh, officials are seeing a new generation of activists according to the report the law center spotlights Edward Cornkey, a Michigan man who hosts an internet radio show about militias. His father, Mark, was a major figure in the 1990s military movement and served six years in prison for charges, including assaulting police. Last year, officials warned about an increase in activity from militias in a five-year threat project. See, this comes under the threat projects to talk about. Uh, it's a massive organization. This was looking for all kinds of threats, bacterial warfare, everything, and, and uh, violence and militias, and, and people fighting back when they're losing their property even, has been discussed on, uh, with these threat projects. White supremacists, white supremacists and militias are more violent and thus more likely to conduct mass casualty attacks on the scale of the 95 Oklahoma City bombing, the threat projection said. I guess a computer must have spat it out. Maybe one is the second-hand ones that gives you global warming. A series of domestic terrorism incidents over the past year have not been directly tied to organized militias, but the rhetoric behind some of the crimes are similar. So here you are, uh, a so-called series of domestic, domestic terrorism incidents over the past year have not been directly tied to the militias, but the rhetoric behind some of the crimes are similar. So if you, if you don't belong to any organization and you believe you have a right as a sovereign citizen to say something, uh, with a constitution and a bill of rights, no, you're still classified, you see, as a terrorist, domestic terrorist. And do you understand this is actually saying this in this article here? And I'm sure there's many, many more. This article is a hand that will be across a lot of different papers across the U.S. So anyone at all who still thinks they've got a country and they should stand up for the country, all their rights even, all their rights, as a terrorist. And, we, and of course, they have been teaching that uh, to police for years now. People with constitution or pocket constitutions that are very popular and so on, uh, if they have them under possession, uh, should be treated as a suspect, possible terrorist. That's the reality of it all for those who think they still have a country. See, uh, the, the coup was, taken, it was done a long time ago. It was done when they signed the charter agreement 
at the at the United Nations in San Francisco a long time ago. That that was bound all the countries together under the tenets of the United Nations. You can't belong to the UN unless you agree to all of its agenda, all of it. That's population control. Uh, World Health Organization with mandatory powers over the entire world, etc., etc. That was all done, and they signed it all back then, a long time ago. They didn't want to tell most countries until recently that you have no countries. That's why they started slipping governance, global governance, over the last few years, because they still wanted the U.S. to provide soldiers to be the army to finish off the job. Back with more after this break. Through the Matrix. It's quite amazing, though, if I get the link to that BBC documentary I mentioned at the same time as reading that article, at the end of it, uh, as the man's driving along, the interviewer, uh, you see this little drone, this little drone following his car. They have them in Britain. They follow you around and take pictures and so on, of a flying drone like something out of sci-fi. That's all for safety, of course, all the spying. And everybody is being put under... Uh, are you uh, put under the, the terrorism laws in Britain for the, the slightest misdemeanor? Even if your dog poops, they'll spy on you to watch. The whole teams will come out and watch you night and day, courtesy of the taxpayer. Amazing. This, this is worse than any tyrannical system the world has ever, ever seen. Ever seen. And it's going to get worse. Because when you put cameras in everybody's homes, not just the first few thousand families mandated by the government. They want them in everyone's home for behavior modification, they call it. Here's an ad. It's out currently, it's been out for a little while, for the National Guard in the U.S. It says here, earn more money with the skills you have. Learn more of the skills you need, it says. The job title is for a corrections officer dash internment dash resettlement specialist job description is an, inter- an internment resettlement specialist for the army national guard you'll ensure the smooth running of military confinement correctional facilities or descent detention and inter- internment facility similar to those duties conducted by civilian corrections officers so it's going to be the same thing that's going to happen in the states this will require you to know proper procedures and military law and have the ability to think quickly in high-stress situations. Specific duties may include assisting with supervision and management operations, providing facility security, providing custody, control, supervision, and escort and counseling individual prisoners in rehabilitative programs. That's where they stop you from saying, I'm an American citizen, just saying, I'm a global citizen, I'm a global citizen, and now you're stamped approved. You see? Stamped approved. But there you go. Uh, an internment-resettlement specialist. That's what they're recruiting for. And they train you for it, too. And that ties in with an article that came about, I think, last month from Idaho. I think it was Idaho Observer. An article where, maybe for the first time in any kind of mainstream 
uh, newspaper, they've taken this seriously before it's been called conspiracy and conspiracy uh, imaginings from conspiracy buffs, all the stuff to do with internment camps, but I've actually got stuff here where Bush in Obama has allocated more and more money to, to the building of these facilities across the U.S. And here they are advertising for internment resettlement specialists. And, of course, we're just being paranoid, aren't we? I mean, they're just doing all of this stuff just in case, you know, the sky falls and stuff like that. That's all it's for. So why are we worried? Why are we worried? And you've got nothing to hide. Why are you worried anyway? Isn't that what they say? Isn't that what they say? I used to laugh at New York. I still laugh at New York. Um, and it's, it's really the, the world's capital outside of London for commerce across the planet and money, etc. And you don't go to live in New York unless you can really hustle and live uh, amongst people who are already trained to, to, to be top hustlers. You've got to know what you're doing to live in New York. It's a very cold place otherwise, very, very cold. You're, you're either a winner or a loser. That's it. And I can remember when the tent cities were up there quite a few years ago, and Canada was watching them. Toronto, the mayor of Toronto, that was Mel Lastman at that time, uh, was watching what the mayor of New York was doing with all the homeless. Well, the homeless in New York City, the tent city, simply got bulldozed down. They bulldozed them out the way, you know. And those, those, it was kind of like watching what they do in Israel uh, with the, the Palestinians' homes. We've seen that so many times on TV. It's just much the same. Only tents go down much easier and cardboard and stuff like that and tin. And then uh, Mel uh, took, the, took the hint from New York and did the same thing in a tent city that was forming outside Toronto. You mustn't have these eyesores, you see. Everybody believe we're prosperous and we're doing well. And, and this, it's annoying to see this kind of stuff and people in rags, and it's just not, not nice. So they simply bulldoze everything down and, and try to get rid of them. Well, here's the latest thing from New York. And this is from The Guardian, UK. New York gives homeless people a one-way ticket to leave the city. They're deporting them. They're deporting the people. Families given travel costs to tackle problem of overcrowded shelters to save taxpayers' money. 29th of July, 2009. Homeless men sleep on park benches in New York. It says homeless men sleep on park benches in New York on the photographs, etc., etc. Here was the story itself. It says, New York has found a novel if expensive way of dealing with its overcrowded shelters, buying one-way tickets for homeless families to leave the city. Under the initiative by the administration of the mayor, Michael Bloomberg, Hundreds of families have been given plane, rail, and bus tickets, and even gasoline vouchers to leave the city. One homeless family of five was given $6,332 worth of travel costs to Paris, according to the New York Times, deporting them all. They don't want them there. They don't want them there. The city justifies such costs because it argues the alternative is more expensive. It costs New York's taxpayers $36,000 to put up a homeless family in a night in a shelter for a year. And we're back with more on this topic after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. 
this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Reading an article from the New York Times to do with the deportation of people who end up in poverty lane and how they're deporting them to other countries or across the U.S., depending on if you have any relatives anywhere. It says here, the families can qualify for the tickets if they have a relative in another part of the world, including the U.S., who says they're willing to house them. Since the $500,000 a year scheme was launched in 2007, 550 homeless families have been paid to leave the city. None have come back. It says we want to divert as many families as we can that need assistance. Vida Chavez Downs, a city official, said, We have paid for visas. We've gone down to the consulate. We've provided letters. We've paid for passports for people to go. Anyone who comes through our door. Critics have dismissed the initiative as a gimmick. Arnold Cohen, head of a New York campaign group partnership for the homeless, told the New York Times the city is engaged in cosmetics. What we're doing is passing the problem of homelessness to another city. We're taking people from a shelter bed here to the living room couch of another family. Essentially, this family is still homeless. The closest British equivalent was an initiative in London to relocate homeless families to towns with a surplus of homes, such as Huddersfield. It's quite, quite something, isn't it? Quite something. Uh, they never address the problems. Eh? You, you just won't say why there's so many people homeless. And, and, of course, they'll never say, well, the economy is smashed. By design, mind you. Because we're in a new, uh, we're in a new age of change. This is a century of change where we've got to eat less and, and do a lot of things uh, less. And, um, and not buy so much, etc., and get used to getting minimum wages, because we won't need all that money, you see, because we're not allowed to buy so much eventually. They'll be spying on you if you do. And uh, this is all part of it. You see, you're living through an agenda here. Do you understand there's an agenda at work? It's not just a crashing economy that happened by itself. It's not just the fact that academia has been looking forward to this century of change for 50 years. And they have helped draft a lot of this stuff up through their NGOs from academia. And governments across the world are implementing the same laws for their police state world to make sure that under behavior modification we all completely, completely change our ways. This is behavior modification. This is Skinnerian techniques. Terrify the people just like terrifying the dogs, spying them with cameras everywhere, internet all their information, intimidate them until they're quivering, and then you recondition them. That's what you do. And that's what the the Soviet-Fabian system, communist system, has always done whenever it's in power. And you're living under this because I said years ago, you had a fascist elite at the top. That's how the world is to be run who own all the resources of the planet. Mind you, they'll say it's in care of you. It's the people's water. It's the people's electricity. It's the people's oil. But they, of course, will be in charge of it, in charge of the big profits too. Well, a Sovietized governmental system, a police state, runs the masses from the bureaucracies down. That's already up and running, if you don't know. That book I read a long time ago on the air, 
from the Royal Institute of International Affairs dash CFR, Council of Foreign Relations, from the 1930, I think, at eight meeting in Melbourne, Australia, discussed immigration into all the Western countries and how it would be in 50 years' time or more. They went right into the past the year 2001. And they had representatives from every British Commonwealth country there and other non-Commonwealth countries like the United States there too. They had members from Canada there who were in government and once who had been and now were out of government. Again, they never get retired, remember. And they talked about the quotas from different countries and how they'd bring... Britain was slated primarily to take immigrants in by the end of the century, mainly uh, from uh, the British Commonwealth countries, including India. So India was a priority, and they certainly know it now. It's been done. It's been done. But they also knew there'd be an upset period during this this this, this time of transition, as I like to call it. Like, there are nice words for all of this stuff. Transition means all the chaos is cultures clash, you see. I mean, they, they do clash. There are real differences in cultures. When large, large groups come into any country from a completely different alien culture, there's always clashes. And then government immediately steps in to stop any problems. They'll brand any problems as racist to make everyone feel guilty right away rather than stand back and say, well, you know, there are cultural problems here. There's different ways of doing things, and so on. This is also the time that uh, Julian Huxley talked about the period of, oh, there would be, yes, of a, a changeover, all morals after being destroyed, you see, to create this new world culture. And it won't be based on a British system or an American system. It's a new world culture that is being, it's already up in, in its early phases. It's already to roll into the whole phase. It's a completely different culture where you simply obey like the Soviets. That, that's really what it is. In fact, more so than the Soviets, because there truly will be a personally monitored police state for everyone. So they foresaw in 1938 all of this stuff that we're now reading about today, because it was planned that way, you see. These are planning uh, meetings that they have, their world meetings. They weren't just planning an upcoming war with Germany, which they were, but they also mentioned in the same book it'd be fortunate if Japan would attack the U.S. and bring them into this war that hadn't started yet. These guys know it all. And the man from India complained that, that Britain wasn't taking enough immigrants at that time, or Canada. And he said that would be rectified once they conditioned the public to accept it, to accept that culture coming in, which would be done mainly through comedies, of course, then movies and documentaries, etc., 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 and then education of a, of a whole generation. So naturally, they still, they've still done a lot to offset the clashes, but it's still there. They've got to have special uh, um, ethnic leaders in every area now that, that have to get together and all fight out their differences between each other. That costs a fortune. From the taxpayer, all of this stuff costs a fortune. The, the, te- the, the tuition costs costs a fortune when so many of them can't speak any English. That's old news. This article is from Wednesday, August the 12th, 2009, from Mail Online. English-speaking pupils are a minority in inner-city London primary schools. I think that's the same in a lot of other countries now, too. 
It says 54% of primary pupils from inner city schools like this one in East London do not have English as their first language. Children who speak English as their first language are now a minority in inner city London primary schools, official figures showed yesterday. Youngsters with a different mother tongue form a majority in primaries in 13 out of 33 London boroughs and in nearby Slough. In inner London, 54% of primary pupils and 48.5% in secondary institutions do not speak English as their first language. This amounts to an astonishing 159,340 children. Inner London, that's just inner London. Across the country, English is a foreign language to more than one in seven primary youngsters, almost half a million. The figures from the Department for Children, Schools and Families point to the major demographic changes over the past few decades. Around a fifth of pupils are from ethnic minorities, up from 11% in 1997. There are concerns that school finances are under strain as growing numbers of youngsters require help with English. Heads leaders have urged the government to fund schools adequately and give fair treatment during inspections to those with large concentrations of non-English speakers. Figures show there are 14 council areas in which primary children with English as their second language are in the majority, 13 London boroughs and as the same slum. In Tower Hamlets, almost four out of five youngsters do not have English as their mother tongue. In other areas, including Leicester, Luton and Bradford, the proportion is approaching 50%. For primaries overall, 15.2% are non-native English speakers, up from 14.4% last year. The figures indicate that many recent migrants have settled in London. As I've said before, it's not that you're overpopulated, it's just that the doors are wide open. And it's the governments who are bringing in immigrants. Then it's the governments that point to to, to overcrowding and say there's just too many people in the world. You see? The lowest populations of youngsters with English as a second language are in the southwest and northeast. Sir Andrew Green of the Migration Watch think tank, another private thing, you see. These figures confirm the huge impact immigration is having on our society. When government funds are as tight as they are, this is bound to have a negative impact as children with English as an additional language will need extra tuition. He added, in inner London, it's hard to know whose immigrant children are supposed to integrate with since they heavily outnumber the local children. And see, all the propagandas for the incomers to, to integrate, but they outnumber the local children. The figures reflect a five-fold increase in immigration since Labour came to power, Net immigration has increased from 40,000 in 97 to 237,000 in 2007. From 48,000 to 237,000 in 207. And where do they go? They go to the same existing cities. Then the government can say, oh, look at that. You're all crap. There's just too many people. There's too many people. My God. Of course, there's not enough work either, so there's too much crime. We've got to spy on you all. Ho, ho. Isn't it wonderful how government sets up the problem and points to the people and says, oh, we've got, to, we've got to control you all? You think this is all by accident? Do you really, really? Those who do, please go off and listen to some other radio station. Maybe Andy Pandy or something like that. Winnie the Pooh.
strange flu vaccine is really causing some controversy. Because, the, the, first I think they gave it to children in Japan, and there was incredible damage done to a lot of children. I think some of them died with it. But they're really thrown it out in Europe and other countries because of the public panic. That's what the whole panic campaign was drummed up for by big pharma and government. And they're just dishing this out to anyone with a sniffle without it testing them even for see if they've actually got... In fact, they don't really want to test them because they don't know that not enough of them really have the swine flu. That's why they're not testing them. They want to put them down as having swine flu, but they don't want to test them to prove them wrong. They want the numbers. It says, swine flu TV presenters, uh, presentations, the daughter, um, her presenter's daughter almost died after taking Tamil flu. This is fairly common. GMTV star Andrew Castle confronts Health Secretary Andy Burnham over policy of giving drugs to children. Tuesday, 11th of August. Andrew Castle says, with co-op presenter Penny Smith confronted the Health Secretary Andy Burnham over giving Tamiflu to children during the swine flu pandemic. The Health Secretary Andy Burnham today defended giving the antiviral drug Tamiflu to children for swine flu as TV presenter Andrew Castle said his daughter almost died after taking it. Burnham was confronted by Castle on GMTV after researchers said the antiviral drug's benefits did not outweigh its side effects during the flu pandemic. Castle said his older daughter, Georgina, had a respiratory collapse and suffered very heavily after being just handed the drug without a proper diagnosis. That's what they're doing across the board. They don't want a proper diagnosis because then they can't hand out the Tamiflu. There'd be no need for it. The presenter said, I can tell you that my child, who was not diagnosed at all because she had asthma, she took Tamiflu and almost died. Burnham sympathized with Castle, always sympathetic, saying it must have been very worrying, but maintained that advice to parents to treat swine flu with Tamiflu remained unchanged. Member of Parliament said Georgina would have been given Tamiflu during the earlier containment phase of swine flu. He stressed that the research dealt with the seasonal flu, not swine flu. It's very much a safety-first approach. It sounds utterly confused to me. Given that swine flu had a disproportionate effect on children, the minister maintained that the antiviral drug was our only line of defence. Now, they've already admitted it doesn't work. So how is it a line of defence? Some 300,000 people in England, including children and adults, have received Tamil flu through the government's National Pandemic Flu Service for England. Now, how many of them do you think got, got a, nose, uh, a, a, a swab sent off to a laboratory to test for it? Well, probably a bit, maybe two, maybe one, maybe none. But yesterday, Oxford University researchers said children should not be given the antiviral drug to combat swine flu. The Oxford Department of Health is shrink. Do you think it's policy on giving the drug to under-12s during the current pandemic? A study published in the British Medical Journal warned that Tamiflu could cause vomiting, which could lead to dehydration and the need for hospital treatments. Researchers said children should not be given the drug if they had a mild form of the illness, although they urged parents and the GPs, general practitioners, to remain vigilant for signs of complications. Parents of children with a compromised immune system or a condition such as cystic fibrosis should discuss the harms and benefits with their general practitioner, they said. 
but overall, there's a set just said children who were otherwise healthy could suffer more harm than benefit from taking Tamiflu or other antiviral drugs such as influenza. Researchers also found that using antivirals as a preventative measure had little effect in reducing transmission of flu. Or reduce it, it may reduce it may reduce the flu by eight percent. It may. I like that kind of stuff. The study was carried out in April and May before the government decided to stop using Tamiflu preventively. Only those with suspected or confirmed swine flu were now getting the drug and being urged to get access to Tamiflu through the pandemic flu service, which is accessed online or via a telephone helpline. The Department of Health spokesman yesterday dismissed the researchers' uh, claims that their findings would also apply to swine flu. The BMG reviews is based on seasonal flu and not swine flu, he says. But boy, they really help to complicate it. They like to muddy the waters. Eh? It says, Georgina 16 was given Tamiflu when five pupils at Elaine's school in South London were diagnosed with the illness in May. We saw a respiratory collapse through the drug, and it, all, and it almost cost my older child her life, her father said on GMTV. It says, the Health Protection Agency just handed it out. A lot of children suffered in the school very heavily. He went on, the doctor's surgery wouldn't take her. The doctor said, no, we can't take her to uh, A&E. So so she's on the floor having this nightmare of situations. A lot of people are in this situation and they don't know what to do. So socialized medicine in Britain. And and it's just a factory, just wait your turn. Back with more after this break. through the matrix, showing you how the politicians in charge of the Ministry of Health want children to take Tamiflu regardless, even though it's uh, almost killing children. It's maybe killed some already. Uh, we'll hear about that later, and no I doubt they'll hush it up. But um, here's another article, too, after Burnham, that is in charge of uh, pushing this stuff in Britain on behalf of the British government. Uh, here's an article here, again, warning people of the, the dangers of Tamiflu. Uh, it says here, Mail Online, August the 11th, it says, Parents were warned last night not to give Tamiflu to children with swine flu because the risks far outweigh the negligible benefits. Scientists said the powerful antiviral puts children at higher risk of dangerous, dangerous complications but has little impact on the length of their illness. The study for a respected medical journal is the most extensive research of its kind yet carried out. Maybe the minister in charge of of uh, the National Health Service should read it. It concluded that Tamiflu also has very little impact on the spread of swine flu and handing it out freely could even increase the the virus's resistance to the drug. Maybe the drug doesn't do anything in the first place. It said, make you sick. The research will spark widespread confusion as it contradicts the Department of Health, which encourages patients to ring a hotline to get Tamiflu for their children at the first sign sign of flu-like illness. That's why it's a sign. Hay fever, a chew. It comes just a fortnight after a study found half the children taking Tamiflu had side effects such as vomiting, nausea, and nightmares. Do you know this? The stuff also makes the fat move around in their body. It takes it from certain places and dumps it on their belly. 
Did you know that's how potent this stuff is? I mean, is this bio-warfare or what? The government's emergency flu hotline handed out no, handed out no fewer than 100,000 packs of Tamiflu to children under 12 in the first two weeks. But the research published by the British Medical Journal queries the strategy of giving the drug to anyone with potential symptoms over a hotline manned by staff with no medical training. <laughs> yes, I mean, you can do all that. They can buy a helicopters to follow cars on the road and spy on people with infrared. And you can buy all these, these robots that fly in the sky for motorists and stuff and, and have CCTV cameras across all highways integrated in one system. But they can't, you just, they can't train medical staff. That's a sort of bottom priority, isn't it, your health? This researcher said children should not be given the antiviral drug. The two experts behind the study said the government should hold an urgent review into its policy. Urgent. When you can get government to act on a request by people outside the military complex to be urgent, good luck. Dr. Carl Hennigan, a general practitioner and expert from the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, warned that Tamiflu was not a magic bullet. In Dr. Matthew Thompson a GP and researcher at Oxford University analyzed four studies of children aged 1 to 12. 1 to 12, eh? Tamiflu or, other or, the, or the other antiviral relenza. They found that these children were likely to get better less than a day earlier than they would just with rest and recuperation. While in two of the studies, the benefits was not statistically significant. In other words, there's no difference in the time that you got it at all. See how that's, that's worded there? You should say, uh, if you got the flu... You, 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 you take it for aspirin for seven days or to stay in bed for a week. It's the same, you see. It's the same. So I'll put these links up on my site so you can check them out for yourself. And that's at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. The music's coming in for tonight. Nice flown in as always. So from Hamish and myself in Ontario, Canada, Hamish is the dog. It's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you. 